This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... What I'm hearing officially is that they did receive uh, comments and feedback from the military on what the FFC has been focusing on in the talks, in direct talks. Sudanese analyst Jihad Mashmoon talking about news of a framework agreement for a civilian government in Sudan. Details coming up also. We get an update on the climate talks in Egypt and a South African has been nominated for another Grammy Award. And Nigeria has approved construction of its largest power project. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story, the COP27 Global Climate Summit is working its way through its agenda in Egypt. And VOA's Heather Murdoch is there to cover the talks. Thank you. Uh, Heather, so China, along with about 77 developing economies, apparently proposed a loss and damage fund. Could you give us some context on that? Yes, this is the big sticking point that's making it difficult to come to a conclusion. They're expecting to announce um, some kind of final deal plan tomorrow night, but uh, the, the loss and damage fund is the most tricky part of it. What basically, they want to make a new kind of fund for wealthy countries to pay for poor countries, and it's poor countries that are not only on the front lines of climate change usually, they're also the lowest emitters. So there's a basic fairness question um, that pretty much everyone agrees on. This is fair. However, finding ways to move that money to the people who need it is quite difficult. Um, some countries, including the U.S., have mentioned that they will not accept unlimited liability. Um, they will fund climate change-related uh, disaster funds, but not unlimited ones, and they have not yet to announce how they're going to make this loss and damage fund uh, acceptable to all of the important countries that need to give money to funds. And also, I understand that you've been talking to people about the Amazon ahead of the Brazilian president-elect speech. What's that about? Uh, yes, today was an exciting day here at COP27. The Brazilian president-elect uh, is speaking right now. He's about to finish. Um, this is considered his entrance back onto the world stage. And for climate change activists and delegates and people here, it is the re-entrance of Brazil to the climate action world. Um, his predecessor, current President Bolsonaro, has uh, overseen some of the worst for deforestation of the Amazon rainforest in history and has pledged to stop this deforestation. It's a difficult thing that will require political uh, support at home and international support, and he is hoping to kick off a end to the destruction of the rainforest today. And lastly, uh, there is our anti-meat protesters pushing to reduce uh, livestock production. What is the connection with climate change? Yes, as you know, there's a limited, only a limited amount of activists having protests at this conference um, based on Egyptian, the Egyptian rules. But these uh, vegan activists have been outside the conference almost every day, often dressed in costumes of pigs and cows, and what they're saying is, 
that's if everyone eats vegan, it's better for the environment. And this is not a incorrect claim. There's a huge amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions come from the meat industry, about 20%, and scientists say it actually could be even more. Um, so there's a kind of irony there. You see the vegan activists when you walk in, and the first thing you see when you cross the gates is a booth selling hamburgers and the smell of cooking beef. And uh, mm-hmm. while veganism is not on the table, it's it, at the uh, at the conference. It's one one way that the world could improve the climate by individual actions. So they are trying to make a point, and they have been heard a bit here, if not officially on the conference floor. From Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt, VOA's Heather Murdoch. Thank you for your input. Thank you. Reuters is reporting that Sudan's pro-democracy coalition called the Forces of Freedom and Change says it has reached a framework agreement with the military to end the country's political deadlock that began just over a year ago with the military coup. A second stage of talks to be launched will reportedly take up transitional justice, dismantling the Bashir regime and other areas. Sudanese analyst Jihad Mashmoon, who is an honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in England tells VOA's Carol Van Dam his sources in Sudan say the agreement contains an immunity clause for military leaders. The, mil- the military, on its own, it wants an immunity to, uh, to avoid prosecution for the crimes before the transition period uh, that ended in 2021, October 2021, and until the new government is formed. And that's the sticking point. There is seems to be like a political game happening around this, is that the military is actually trying to discredit the FFC yeah, from the rest of the, the protest movement, that is the resistance uh, committee. Now, the military wants to discredit them in order to tell the civ- uh, population, see, the civilians don't really care about you. And also it's discrediting the armed movements in Darfur and Blue Nile to tell them, see, the armed movements don't even care about you. They're all opportunists. You have no one but to rely on us, the military. So we have uh, heard that we heard that that is the game plan of the military in the past. But this is a new development that they have reached a framework agreement. Are you hearing that this framework agreement is in place and that they are moving forward from that to end the political deadlock in the country? What I'm hearing officially is that they did receive a. Uh, comments and feedback from the military on what the FFC has been focusing on in the talks, indirect talks, and that they're reviewing it, especially the immunity clause, and that they'll come up with responses uh, tomorrow after discussing it. When you talk about the immunity clause, uh, Jihad, what what exactly do you mean by that? Okay, that's a great question. The immunity clause, basically, the military wants is that no one is going to be prosecuted for the crimes committed so far from the military or the armed forces. Now, there is a study focusing now on putting something called procedural immunity, that the immunity clause would be removed by a vote of parliament, the legislative council, if there is a legislative council, that it will be tasked with, uh, it's only one responsible for removing the, removing the procedural immunity of any figure in the sovereign council or in the government. Now, would that kind of a deal, immunity deal, affect, you know, the former uh, Sudanese leader, Omar al-Bashir? Would it affect some of his allies that are, you know, currently still facing some charges, criminal charges? 
That deal mostly centered around the military uh, that the FFC is speaking with. Now, the former president, Omar Bashir, and the others who are wanted by the ICC, they're focusing on handing, uh, prosecuting them and handing them over, absolutely. And they also promised to focus on allowing the commission to do its work and investing in the emptying of the protest site. That's Jihad Mashmoon, a Sudanese expert and honorary research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter in England. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. U.S. President Joe Biden's brief stopover at the U.N. Climate Conference today included intensive consultations on the case of Ala Abdel Fattah, the British-Egyptian political prisoner on a hunger and water strike in an Egyptian prison. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Washington is doing all it can to get Fattah and other political prisoners freed. Now the Egyptian media introduced a new message. President par- presidential pardon would be in the interest of Egypt first and foremost. VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi discussed these developments with Saeed Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo. We have seen intensive diplomatic and NGO activities on, on his behalf in particular during COP27, sometimes overshadowing the climate conference itself. There is no immediate official promise of any early release, but we have witnessed signs of improving his imprisonment conditions. He ended his hunger strike and strike also. He sent letters that his health is better to his family, and the family dispatched an official request to President Sisi to pardon him, and the pro-government media recommended not to tense Egyptian-Western relations over this issue. So, in short, there are signs of possible later presidential pardon or better improvement in his imprisonment conditions until his term ends. An immediate release now is not politically feasible. However, it may be in a later day. President Biden has pledged to make human rights a focus of his presidency and especially to hold President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi accountable for human rights violations. However, Egyptians are mocking this pledge in social media as pictures of Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi walking hand in hand with the Egyptian president. And there is a potential visit by President Sisi to the White House next month. Your take on that? Business as usual or real politic, Egypt is more strategically important to the U.S than improving human rights situation. Egyptian gas, important for America's EU partners, the Suez Canal, fighting terrorism, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is escalating these days, with new lone wolves attacks by Palestinians, security of the East Mediterranean and the Red Sea, Sudan, Libya. So all those issues overshadow other issues, including human rights, by both the House Speaker and the President of the U.S. So a visit by Sisi to the U.S. also confirms that Egyptian-American relations are back to normal without linking the human rights issue with other strategic cooperation matters. In spite of popular dissatisfaction with inflation and devaluation of the Egyptian currency, the call for a popular uprising scheduled for November 11th failed to materialize. Can you explain? 
Revolutions are historically rare in the lives of any nation, and it is not fast food meal you would order or on a set date or hour. Yet, inflation is high in Egypt, over 16.2%. Devaluation has affected over 60% of Egyptian food and production imports. However, people began to feel that repeating the January 2011 and 2013 revolution is not feasible now and had not produced a desire popular results. To the contrary, the economic conditions after two revolutions are worse than the situation under Mubarak in 2010. That was Saeed Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo, speaking with VOA's Mohammed al-Shanawi. With the eyes of the world on Egypt as it hosts COP27, Egyptians don't have to look far for the devastating effects of pollution. For years, they've been breathing air with high levels of some of the most poisonous particles. The Egyptian government has reported that millions of people seek treatment nationwide for respiratory problems caused by polluted air, what the World Bank says causes around 2,600 premature deaths in Cairo alone each year. One problem is the practice of burning rice straw at the end of harvests. It results in thick layers of smog or black clouds that darken the sky. Another is that Egypt depends on fossil fuels to power the nation. However, the Berban Solar Complex, said to be the largest in the world, makes Egypt a leader in renewable energy. Still, questions remain over whether the cash-strapped government will meet its goal of supplying 42% of the country's electricity from renewable resources by 2035. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. The South African artist who wrote and sang the international hit Jerusalem has been nominated for a Grammy Award for a new song. Universal Music Group South Africa released the song Beta earlier this year and it will be competing in the best global music category. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. Nomkeba Sikode's Jerusalem, released in 2019, took YouTube by storm with over 500 million views to date. Now, with Bayetse, she has another hit. Sikode is ecstatic about the Grammy nomination for Bayetse, which she wrote and performed with South African Grammy winning flutist Vota Kellerman and platinum selling King of Dance Groovesmith Zex Bantwini. To receive such news really. Um... I don't know, like you'd understand that it's my first time being nominated. It's, it feels as if I'm a winner already. Like I'm so excited as a South African, a black child, to come so far. She says thanks to the success of Jerusalem, she's being booked for gigs all over the world. Speaking on the phone from Nice, France, she explains what the song Bayete is about. We are thankful to God, like we are giving praise to God and ask him to help us lighten the load that we carry and bring happiness. This is Kellerman's fourth Grammy nomination. He won the coveted award in the Best New Age category in 2015 for his album Winds of Samsara. 
He says Zikode was his first choice to work with on Bayete. We recorded it earlier this year and I've loved her voice, you know, in Jerusalem. Her voice is just so exquisite. So when I started thinking about this song, um, I thought the perfect voice for it would be Nontrebos. Kellerman says it was a great team effort that started in August and ended with them releasing the song at the end of September. Zakes created the chord structure and, and some melody and then she, she wrote her part and then I did all the flute parts and, and all the production. So it's a real three-way collaboration. Kellerman says they're all hoping the song will do even better now. It's doing well on YouTube and on Spotify already. But I think this will be the perfect platform to now get the extra wings that it needs. The Grammy Awards will be held in Los Angeles on February 5th next year. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. The Nigerian government has approved construction of its largest power projects, a hydropower plant that would produce 1,650 megawatts of electricity. According to Reuters, the vice president's spokesperson, Laulu Akinde, says the plant, funded by public-private partnership, will be in the north-central state of Benue. The new service says Nigeria continues to struggle to meet demand for electricity, but due to limited transmission infrastructure, relies on diesel-powered generators. It reported that authorities said last week the government would grant a concession to operate a $1 billion power plant in Zunguru, Niger State, funded by China. Botswana says it seems uh, it's seen a dramatic drop in rhinoceros poaching this year after taking greater steps to protect its shrinking rhino population. Mokandisi Dube reports from Habrone, Botswana. Botswana reported a sharp decline in rhino poaching over the past year, according to a report presented this week at a conference on CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. After losing 126 animals between 2018 and 2021, only six rhinoceroses have been poached in Botswana in 2022. The report says poaching incidents peaked in 2020 when the country lost 62 rhinos. The following year, at least 33 were reported killed by poachers. Botswana's Director of Wildlife and National Parks, Gabelo Senyazo, says the country is doing a lot to protect the rhinos. We've got a, a national anti-poaching structure where it brings all law enforcement agencies. They are, they are very safe. Botswana works with its neighbours. We've got a lot of coordinating mechanisms that, uh, that brings us into contact with our neighbours. The report attributes the decline to the deployment of the army, to poaching hotspots, dehorning the rhinos and moving the animals away from vulnerable areas. The document says the swampy nature of the Okavango Delta, where most of the poaching took place, makes it difficult for law enforcement officers to patrol. Map Ives, founder of Rhino Conservation Botswana, says there's been a shift in rhino poaching activities from Botswana to nearby countries like Namibia and South Africa. As the report points out, these criminal poaching syndicates operate on an international scale. They are highly financed, highly organized, and uh, probably have their tentacles within official structures, which enables their work. So they will move between different countries on a risk and reward basis. 
He says it is possible that the poachers no longer view Botswana as an ideal poaching ground due to a sharp decline in rhino numbers. I think personally the main reason that the poaching of rhinos has gone down in Botswana is that these poaching syndicates literally have cleaned it out. There are just a very few rhinos left in the wild. The rest have been killed or moved by our government to other places within Botswana. It is not worth their while to come after just a few rhinos when they may get caught. The International Rhino Foundation's 2022 State of the Rhinos report indicates Africa's black rhino population grew by 12%. However, Botswana's black rhino herd is under pressure and now numbers only 23 animals down from nearly 60 in 2018. The country's white rhinoceros population stands at 285. The state of the rhino document says overall, Africa's white rhinoceros population is declining due to poaching. Kondisi Dube for VOA News, Haburoni, Botswana. Cameroon is one of the five African teams competing in the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The indomitable Lions began their preparation last October. The course then continued at home with this time a workforce made up of mostly local players. The national team took to the road to Qatar on November 10th. Emmanuel Jules Ntap reported on this story, read by Anthony Labruto. Cameroon's indomitable Lions are set for the World Cup tournament on Sunday. The team's head coach, Rigobert Song, explains the selection process for the published list of the 26-member national team selected for the World Cup, which includes 24 professional and two local players. My colleagues and I have gone through all the points and tried to see which corresponded to what we are looking for. But we will continue in our effort, give hope to the Cameroonian youth today who have chosen to do this job. Coach Song would not comment on his selection decision, but not everyone is happy with it. In Yeyende, some, like Jean-Marc Biam, expressed mixed feelings over the exclusion of big-name players like Mikel Gadu. He says this puts too much pressure on those selected, like Nicolas Koulou. The absence of Ngandu is disturbing. Kulu alone can do anything. If we could call Ngandu back to the team, it really should be fine. Suleiman, who works in Yeyende, says the coach should take responsibility if the teams don't do well due to Ngadu's absence. If the coach believes that Ngandewu is no longer good, he's the one who bears the responsibility for the team. I think that the return of Nicolas Nkulu can fill the hole. So far, Cameroon has yet to win any friendly matches against teams less capped than Switzerland, Serbia and Brazil that the indomitable Lions will meet in pool matches. Sports journalist Joseph Valerie Fosto explains. We played Uzbekistan, we took two. We played Korea and we conceded a goal. Regardless of the level of the opponent who is there, do we receive the balls as we should? Do we look for a solution forward when we have made two passes in our camp? Does it pass with a low opponent? With a less capped opponent, it can always pass. So the most important thing is to stay applied. Before the start of the competition, the technical staff of the Indomitable Lions will have another regrouping with the entire workforce. Assistant coach Augustine Simo says there's nothing to worry about. Another match is scheduled against Panama on the 18th, so we will also have time to refine and work on specific points that we saw against Korea. So there is nothing to worry about. Cameroon will participate in its eighth World Cup, 
the country reached the quarterfinal stage in Italy in 1990. For Emmanuel Jules and Tap, this is Anthony Labruto for VOA in Washington. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.